So again, our series that we're in right now that's going to lead us up to just a couple weeks before the start of Advent is following the lectionary uh, readings that are actually the alternate, alternate readings that we have there. Uh, there's an alternate Old Testament reading that's cued to the gospel reading each week. And so each week we have a, a reading from the Old Testament and then one from the gospel uh, during this particular series. Now, the New York Times uh, death announcement. How's that for a transition? <laughs> right? New York Times death announcement identified Richard Nader as a promoter of what it described as, quote, wildly popular oldies concerts at Madison Square Garden in the 1970s. Did anybody here go to one of those? No? No one's been? Okay. I didn't think so. Or as the headline reads, Oldie's biggest fan is what they referred to Richard Nader as. And though his name appears in the show titles and advertising materials, even bigger were the names of participating musicians in these shows. Here's one example. Concert goers attending Richard Nader's Rock and Roll Spectacular Volume 7, that's what it was titled, at Madison Square Garden on October 15th, 1971, would be treated to the likes of Chuck Berry, Bobby Rydell, Bo Diddley. I only know Bo Diddley from those old Bo Jackson commercials where he says, Bo, you don't know Diddley. <laughs> the Shirelles, the Coasters, and Gary U.S. Bonds. I'd never heard of Gary U.S. Bonds before. I had to look him up on YouTube. He was there. Quite good, actually. If that wasn't enough, promotional materials further tempted would-be audiences with what it called a, quote, special added attraction. Right? That's not the added attraction. One more thing to get you out to that show. The added attraction that year for that show was Rick Nelson. Woo, Ricky. All right, right? and the Stone Canyon Band. But you're there to see Rick Nelson. And with that lineup, big names were not limited to the performers on the stage, as the audience that night included John Lennon and Yoko Ono, as well as George Harrison in disguise. And as the story goes, Rick Nelson and his band began their set with some of Nelson's older songs. But when they played a Rolling Stones cover, the crowd began to boo. Believing the crowd's response was directed at him, Rick would leave the venue only a short time later, like one song later, choosing not to stay for the end of the show, nor appearing on stage for the finale. Perhaps some here this morning have heard this story before. Have you heard this story before about Rick Nelson? You might have heard it and you didn't even know it, didn't even realize it, because Nelson wrote a song about the experience that was released the following year entitled Garden Party. I went to a garden party. That's the story of that Madison Square Garden event. To reminisce with my old friends, a chance to share old memories, play our songs again. Apparently, garden parties can be a place of great disappointment. <laughs> Nelson, of course, isn't the first to observe this. We hear as much about a garden or a vineyard party of disappointment in Isaiah's ancient, much earlier song. Isaiah 5 sounds like a love song from the start. The prophets, beloved, and their vineyard is the kind of language that ancient audiences would associate with the genre. Vineyard being a common reference to a girl, and we see that picked up in the Song of Songs, for instance. Cultivating that vineyard would be readily heard within the framework of marriage preparation, or even cultivating favor with a family that could one day lead to a marital arrangement. 
But knowing that the prophet's work is less to entertain and more to inform and invite a particular action of the hearer, or as Walt, Walter Brueggemann observes, to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception to the dominant culture around us. That's a lot of words to say to get you to do something. The love song intro is rather sneaky. It's rather sneaky here for introducing an oracle from a prophet. And it probably caught not a few unsuspecting listeners at this point off guard. John Goldingay uses this word. He says it's devious. Hearers will soon find themselves at a garden party, the disappointment of which is captured in the second part of verse 2 and also in verse 4. He expected it to yield grapes. That's how it's referenced to the vineyard. But it yielded rotten grapes. But more than finding oneself located in the vineyard, hearers learn that they are in fact the vineyard. That they are yielding those rotten grapes. Alluded to in verses 3 and 4, and, and as much as confirmed in the first part of verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his cherished garden. Of course, what's the bad fruit here? What's the bad fruit that this prophet has in mind? Well, I... Isaiah identifies an expectation that these people would produce justice, or mishpat, and righteousness, zedekah. Good fruit would be these things. And apparently, according to Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 21 through 26, they once did. But things have changed. Things at this point, as Isaiah is talking, have changed for this people. That instead, uh, they're living in a different type of world. Their expression looks quite different from justice and righteousness. And so the, the prophet here continues as songwriter, wielding a poetic pen to underscore the failings of these ancients. It serves as a stinging rebuke to the leadership of the time. And you can't really see it in the English, but here's what happens in the background of how that, that poetry takes shape. They're not doing justice or mishpat, but rather mispak, bloodshed. See how those sound similar? Not Zedekah is righteousness, but Zehakah, a distress cry. And to get a picture here of how bad the latter of these two is, consider Genesis chapter 18 and 19, where such a cry is associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. You're in bad company when your actions are reminiscent of those cities. But maybe all this talk of bloodshed and cries of distress is not specific enough. Maybe you're like, hey, the prophet's being a little bit too abstract here. I, why don't you just get to the point? What exactly are we talking about? Don't give me categories. Give me specifics. Well, immediately following our text is a series of pointed woe statements, beginning in verse 8, that identifies some of the issues. And what we learn in this list of woes is that the ancients have maximum regard for themselves and their own interests, while at the same time, little or no regard for their neighbor, including their literal neighbors, their countrymen, and almost no regard for the Lord. The ancient people are completely out of sorts. The people of God are just the people. They don't see you living as a people who are of God. And that much is clear in the way that they are acting and living towards one another. And that kind of living doesn't have a long shelf life. You don't, you don't go very long living in a culture and in communities that are not just. You end up eating yourselves and destroying one another. John D.W. Watts 
offers a pointed and a harsh assessment of the situation of these ancients at this point when he observes, the song gives a setting for the funeral of a nation and its people who had once held such great promise as the chosen and nurtured people of God. But their fruit was a bitter disappointment, which finally necessitated God's withdrawing his protection and support. Now they are mourned, but also seen as the exploiters and ravagers that they had become. This love song is actually the story of betrayal and unrequited love. Isaiah 5 ends with the prediction of a coming foreign invasion. An invasion includes destruction and exile that would, in fact, come. And we see that as we read through the book of Isaiah. Well, that's kind of a solemn place to end. Right? That doesn't feel good. That feels about as gray as the clouds outside. Thank you very much. What about the gospel? What does the gospel have to say that might offer something more for us to expand our imaginations? Well, we know that artists sometimes include references to earlier work uh, in their pieces. Uh, Macklemore is good at this one. If you know Macklemore, he's good at this one. Downtown, for sure, certainly has that going for it. And in their pieces that they create, there's a kind of nod to the past works of even other artists that can show up. You can see these pieces that show up. But the, the idea here is that that's going to pique the interest of the viewers and the hearers here. And the parable in Matthew that Jesus lays out, the story that Jesus begins to tell, it draws on Isaiah 5. He starts the story by pulling up some of the major components of that Isaiah story. And so you know that if you're in the audience there, that your imagination and your interest, if you've heard Isaiah before, it's going to start stirring up and welling in you. You're going to start knowing familiar categories. You might even say for some, oh, here we go again, because you know where that story went. And so as he shares, this is not quite the sneaky, devious type thing that Isaiah does where it's, hey, let's, let's talk about a love story, and then, whoop, we're going to switch it around. But Jesus starts out drawing on that familiar imagery again of Isaiah to pique the interest of his hearers at this point. And in Jesus' stories, it's a failing of the tenants in view and not the vine, as in the earlier story. But the point's all the same. And, of course, the question that hovers here is who does Jesus have in mind when he's talking about these tenants? But Jesus doesn't immediately hit them with the identification. Instead, we see in verse 40 that he asks them the question, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Not what should he do, but what will he do? All right? So he's not saying, hey, if, if, if everything was equal, hypothetically speaking, what, what should he do? What, what will he do? And the answer that they come back with is one of judgment and condemnation. They say in verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. That's the answer that comes back from this group that's listening to this parable. And they were partly right. They were partly right. But their answer provides a different picture of the landowner in this story. This landowner that Jesus is talking about does something that it seems almost completely inconceivable in my imagination, and I'm sure the imagination of, of many, many folks. Because he sends wave after wave of servants to go and collect if you wipe out the first group of servants, I'm bringing in the cavalry. 
and then we're going to collect, right? I'm not going to send you another wave of servants or even my own child is going to come. So this landowner is already operating differently than the way that we might imagine ourselves or another landowner, in this case, might operate in this type of situation. This master has something else in mind, has a different goal, different set of priorities. And we know that here in this story, but we've also seen that before. Remember when the master is paying out to those who are working in the field and pays, we talked about this text a couple weeks ago, where you get paid if you come and work all day, but you also get paid the same if you worked just a few hours at the end of the day. That, that landowner there acts differently than what we might expect. But in that case, certainly cared about the daily needs of everybody. Got everybody working and everybody paid. And here this landowner sends opportunity after opportunity. And Jesus' response speaks to this master's different way of doing things. When he cites Psalm 118 in the text, we see that in verse 42. It's a song of victory that sings of God's deliverance when the situation looked bleak. The implication here being that Jesus would be at the center of God's plan for deliverance. And there would be a plan for deliverance. That they're to hear both of those things. And the second thing, they were right that the kingdom would be given to another. A new people. In verse 43, Jesus tells them, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits. The temple leadership here understand that they are the ones who are in mind for removal in verse 45. But this isn't a transition to another nation as sorts. When we look at the underlining language here, it was to be given to another nation, the word would have been constructed differently. But instead what happens is God is going to create a new nation that's going to encompass many people from what we'd say within our natural global nations. And Peter will actually talk about this new nation when he writes later on, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That the rescue deliverance that's coming is going to create a new people that's in Jesus Christ. And that new people is going to include people who are Jewish and people who are from all the nations, collected together as one new people. But here's the thing. Instead of joining this new people, the instinct of these ancients in the first century, particularly this leadership, these chief priests and these Pharisees, was not to repent and join. It was not to become part of or associate themselves with this thing that God was doing in Jesus Christ. But rather, they reenact the story itself in quite literal ways, or at least they plot that out. It seems almost comical that Jesus would tell them a story and they would then literally live that out. How could they be so silly? How could they be so predictable that they would try to enact the same kind of violence that we hear in the story itself? Well, it turns out that we can all be susceptible to a similar response. That we all have the capacity for this type of response. We've heard Isaiah. We've heard the gospel parable. But yet we can still live into this type of way of being the type of tenants that are producing bad fruit. And that's not just me saying that, but Paul will write this in Romans. That is true. 
They are broken off on account of unbelief, but you stand on account of belief. So do not become arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. The idea of tenants that act as bad tenants is not something that the Christian community is immune to, but rather it's something that we have to attend to in our own lives, in the ways that we orient ourselves. Apparently, the new people of God might have to let go of our own bad behavior. We're not to let it go to our head that we're the people of God. So don't be that. Don't become arrogant. But also don't be unjust and conduct yourselves or ourselves in that way. It's been suggested that on that day in Madison Square Garden, that day that Rick Nelson got booed, that it had nothing to do with the song itself that he was singing. That instead, a fight broke out in the crowd, and that's what people were booing, but he took it personally, and he thought they were booing him. He thought he had gone to a bad garden party. But he writes the song, and maybe some good comes out of that, because Rick Nelson writes the line, and it's all right now. Yeah, I learned my lesson well. And I wonder for us today if that's our opportunity as well. We've seen the bad garden party. We've heard the boos that are coming to the Isaiah audience and to that first century audience as well. And now it's our chance to learn our lesson well. To learn that lesson well. That God's desire for you and me is that we might live lives of justice and righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we too might learn our lesson well. Maybe so for each one of us today and every day in this generation and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. And particularly, we know that that love is expansive, even, even challenging the places in our hearts and our minds and our lives where we do things that are just so unloving and unkind. But yet you send wave after wave of opportunity to us. You extend your grace to us and you're patient and kind to us. Lord, we put our trust in you and we ask that you continue to do that good work of transformation in our lives. That you draw us to those places that we might live faithful lives, faithful expressions before you. And we're grateful for your love as we see it demonstrated and proven in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your continued call to us as your people. And thank you for the great inheritance that we share in this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.